Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Waters Wavelength podcast. My name is Dandy Francesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Maliki, and the U.S. editor of Waters Technology. Hello, everyone. So last week, we had three features on inside data management and one feature on Waters all go up regarding MIFID 2. And although we didn't get a chance to, to discuss them on the podcast because of Sean Belka from Fidelity Labs coming on to talk about virtual reality, uh, Anthony and I thought it'd be a good idea this week to talk about them because they all touch on different areas. It's, you know, a data focus, a waters kind of more broad focus, um, a clock sync focus, and then also an Asia perspective. So it's a good look at a regulation that's going to impact a lot of us. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, we'd first like to mention this week's sponsor, SmartStream, the global software and managed services provider. SmartStream works with more than 70 of the world's top 100 banks on things relating to post-trade processing, data management, automating the trade process, and workflow solutions. So, Anthony, I we split it up two and two, uh, and I think because we're Waters guys and mm -hmm. we're selfish, we're going to start yeah. with the Waters feature. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's <laughs> the way to do it. Yeah, obviously. So, uh, why don't you kick things off for us? Sure. Um, so I guess the whole point of this will just kind of be like, Dan, I'm just going to give a quick little roundup on what these look at. Because again, there's basically 10,000 words, if not more, um, dedicated to MIFID 2 between these four features. And obviously, there's going to be a lot more written about in the year to come as the deadline hits in 2018. Um, but so we'll kind of give you a kind of quick little overview of these four stories. Hopefully, uh, we do them service and it'll make you want to go and read them. Each one's about 2,000 words each. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, Agalos's uh, feature. He works for Waters, staff reporter for Waters in Europe. Um, he looked at uh, new trade and transaction reporting requirements stemming out of MIFID II. Um, as Neil Bond, he spoke, uh, was head trader at Erdov Erdovara. Um, oh, 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 that's called karma. When you're uh, giving yeah. me all the crap for not being able to. I should have looked at that one uh, first. Uh, <laughs> asset management. It's an asset manager based in uh, Europe, I guess. So uh, Neil Bond uh, spoke with Eglos, and he was lamenting the fact that there's extra work for asset managers and extra cross. And basically, this is stuff that used to be handled by brokers is now kind of being driven onto the plates of asset managers. And another big problem around it is that there isn't a lot of clarity in certain areas. Um, so I guess let's start with the clarity pr perspective of it. You know, there's things around like uh, there isn't a lot of clarity around, you know, uh, such as uh, uh, off exchange trades of venue listed products and then OTC products. Um, you had someone saying uh, you have OTC derivative transactions pushed under the ta under trade reporting obligation. But the question is, how would that work? Um, in the consultation paper on trading obligations for derivatives, ESMA initially considered including only cleared derivatives, but now it's being um, expanded. So there's a lot of questions that are still around it. Also, I think Agolos is working on a feature on this um, around the European firm of what a CEF is, uh, OTF, uh, Organized Trading Facilities. So there's questions around that. Um, one of the other thing, interesting things is just looking at, so the sheer amount of data, so this was a quote from uh, Vincent Dessard, uh, Senior Regulatory Policy Advisor at European Fund and Asset Management Association. But he talks about the sheer amount of data to produce, the lack of existing infrastructures, and the delays uh, to have those structures explained by the authorities are making it complicated to set up in an efficient manner. Um, 
the fields of transaction reporting are increasing from 24 to 65, and asset managers have exactly 90 seconds to submit trade reports after a trade is executed and uh, conduct an appropriate analysis on what is featured in reportings when it comes to other parties. Again, much of this was all handled by brokers in the past. So this is a, s a similar element that you hear over here in the U.S. Uh, coming from the buy side of more stringent reporting requirements and building out that infrastructure. Many of the firms over here have turned to third parties um, and specifically around cloud providers. But is that going to be appropriate for these regulations here? Um, these are the questions that are going to have to be answered over the next year. Um, well, that's let me jump in yeah, here sure. because that's uh, kind of a great point and it, it kind of falls in line with my story. So the story that I looked at, which was reporting for duty, duty the growing reporting burden of MIFID II by Joanna Wright. And again, this is the uh, inside data management angle, so a little bit more data heavy. But that's kind of the crux of this, right, is the big point. Well, not the crux of it. It's a big regulation. But the, the big part of it is that for so long, the sell side, you know, because of Amir had kind of delegated, it, the buy side had delegated this to the sell side, right? And now it's kind of flipping where basically it's too expensive and too complex for the sell side to continue to do it for free because yeah. a lot of them would do it free they would just kind of eat it out of their business they have but enough was, on their own plate as it is exactly now it's kind of it's way too much so now the buy side and there's kind of two schools of thought at least that was joanna's feature kind of looked at how there's two schools of thoughts basically there's the the smaller buy side firms that are still hoping to somehow delegate it to you know a, a third party somewhere and then you have the big buy side firms that are kind of consolidating all of this data into a single place and either managing it themselves or having a single provider um you know the type of solution they're looking for the the points that were brought up were data aggregation enrichment of the data transformation of the data into the correct forms and pre-validation pre of the data to get a little bit more um, inside baseball, so to speak, you know, more of a data perspective. Another big thing is the LEI, the Legal Entity Identifier, which is going to be also required January 3rd, 2018. And you cannot trade for on behalf of a firm that doesn't have an LEI that should have an LEI, which is kind of a hard and it's go supposedly going to be a hard and fast rule that a lot of firms need to kind of get up on because right now there are only 482,000 LEIs have been issued. And a lot of them have only been issued in the derivative space because that's what originally this was first for when this was first founded back in 2009. So you have these firms that don't deal in that in, in that, that those type of instruments, aren't familiar with LEIs, don't know the process of getting it, and that's kind of a big hiccup because it's also not something that's going to happen overnight. Another, and this is something I think I want to get your opinion on. So another piece of it is there's also in addition to the LEI, there's also personal information that's required. Now originally. Uh, it was it wanted passport numbers for decision makers and traders. Um, now, supposedly ESMA has relaxed on some of these rules regarding the passport numbers, but you still need information on the decision maker, at the firm, which is an issue because as people in the story brought up, how do you know who the decision maker necessarily is at the other firm you're dealing with? But my question to you is, so we've had this now with the CFTC and their source code repository, a little bit of a different angle, but again, you're having this congregation of this PII, this personal information, is this a path that we really want to go down? Well, I think in Europe, they're much more left-leaning on these kind of uh, ideas, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if those things go forward. I think that over here, obviously, um, with the Republicans in power, those things won't get pushed forward ideas around that. So I wouldn't know enough about the European side of it. Didn't mean to that put you on the spot. No, that sounds insane to me, though, To that you're giving out passport number two decision maker. A, how do you know who the decision maker is? B, 
why? I don't understand the value behind it. Those are kind of neither here nor there. So another, you know, I'm just running through these quickly. We'll, you know, we'll have all the points up. Uh, we'll have all the links up so you can definitely check out the stories and you should. Um, another thing is that the rejection of the forms will be noticed. So if you don't fill out the form, I believe there's uh, 65 fields that need to be reported in XML-like format on a T plus one basis to the National Competent Authority. So if you send in your form to the NCA and the NCA and uh, the, your approved reporting mechanism rejects that, uh, then if that continues to crop up, that's going to be something that they're going to turn around and call you, which wasn't necessarily the case before. So it's really a crackdown. Um, and then kind of the one thing is, so to those buy side firms that have been reporting since MIFID one, you know, to the ones that have taken this on and haven't, you know, gone out to delegates that, that haven't delegated it, there is still going to be an issue, uh, with the biggest thing is finding out where the data is coming from the OMS is kind of where the different where it's all coming from to gather it um and that's something all this needs to start kind of be, being done by q2 so i mean it's all again just to kind of wrap those kind of two features up in a bow buy sides taking on greater responsibility now and this has been the case now since 2007 2008 but they're pushing even harder there in europe especially with mifid 2 expanding upon uh, mifid 1 um and also you know stop us if you've heard this before the importance of aggregating data, being able to source the data, data tag it, you know, governance, dissemination. These are all, these aren't new factors. Um, it's just continuing to push harder and harder forward to provide transparency in the market. Um, that was what some would say. Some would say that it's providing way too much cost and for not any sort of great value. What is being used with this greater for the, all this transparency, what are what have we seen? What are we shown as tangible results? Obviously, MIFID two hasn't gone into effect yet, so there's nothing that they can do. But from other similar things, AFMD, Form PF, things like that, have we really improved the uh, market? That's not for and, me to say. I have no idea. And the buy side, you know, and this wasn't in my story at least, but I can say from hearing people speak at the buy side, you know, our buy side conference or what is USA, they're not going gently into the night. Uh, they are kicking and screaming. You know, we had one tech folk at a buy side firm basically say at Franklin Templeton basically say that, you know, he's praying for another delay, whether that comes down or not. I don't see it. I think it was pretty public. The, the one year delay they already initiated. I don't think they're going to want to do it again, but, uh, it, it's you know it's it, the the backs are against the wall now and you're gonna have to start getting this sorted out because it's not an overnight type of thing yeah um and i think uh you know kind of just kind of expand upon what we're looking at so there we're looking at reporting requirements there's obviously a lot of other fields at play here um one of the other interesting stories um this one was covered by joe faulkner um she covers uh, inside market data and inside data management magazine um, but she looked at uh, MIFID II's requirements for time synchronization, which is something that Dan's spoken about with the cat, and we'll mm -hmm. get to that in sure. just a moment. Um, but this is designed to uh, protect investors by ensuring a standard of precision that matches the precision of high-speed trading practice. Those are Joe's words, not mine, um, since she put it much better than <laughs> I could ever put it. Um, so I guess of the many things that MIFID II is aiming to do, it's looking to create the the, the foundations of a consolidated audit trail and also to um, to to get rid of the inconsistencies that that um, exist between uh, different market partici participants uh, clock servers and timing sources so 
there is a lot of complex terminologies that I'm not going to get into when it comes Love to those ideas and stories. synchronizations. I mean, the fact that you have the coordinated universal time or the acronym UTC. Oh, I know UTC. You don't know UTC? I know UTC. You're not Why? down with UTC? Oh, oh you, you know, know me. me? Uh, <laughs> cut is the appropriate acronym there. Why couldn't they call it cut? Don't know. That really upsets me. But it talk, But Joe talks about the usage of GPS uh, standardization signals. Um, as the source for the UTC, um, and then there's a lot of pushback uh, coming from the industry around um, the reliability of GPS signals, uh, their uh, resiliency to cyber attacks or to signal disruptions. Um, and so the one interesting, I guess the, the, the most interesting that I found of this was that Joe said that the, the, the majority of firms right now that they're looking at implementing Article 4 OT, RTS 25 correctly. Um, is where their things, and this was a quote. I uh, can't, don't have the name here, so anonymous quote, but it wasn't anonymous. So it was tagged somebody. <laughs> just don't have the story in front of me. But it says, "Firms may use whatever time source and dissemination method they like, but they must be able to provide traceability back by documenting the system design, functioning, and specifications. Also, they must be able to identify the exact point at which a timestamp is applied and demonstrate that the point within the system where the timestamp time is applied remains consistent." Basically, if you don't live up to this, the fines um, for not being able to audit back to a government source of time uh, for smaller firms will be in the millions, for the larger firms will be in the tens of millions. That's enough to scare enough people to want them to start to focus on uh, this on this uh, regula regulation. Um, the one other thing I would say uh, coming from this uh, article is uh, there are also challenges beyond the accuracy of the clocks themselves, uh, with regulators asking for a level of timestamp precision that has never been seen before. Applications may have to be updated or redeveloped to store the timestamps. Timestamps will only get longer, and the ch challenge lies uh, with the trading participant and venues to make sure they can accommodate that. So, yes. So, no, the, I, I believe he was quoted in this story as well. Uh, Jock Perseus, right? Yeah. Uh, I've dealt with him in the past on stories, and I don't remember what the regulation or what the stipulation was, but I once spoke to him about clock sync uh, for a story, and he basically said, he's like, listen, Dan, I make money off this. This is my business, and even I'm saying this is ridiculous. Like, yeah, and, and I'm not speaking specific. I'm, I don't know if this was Mifid too. I don't believe it was. It was my point being – is that I think the regulators go a little overboard sometimes with this clock sync. Obviously, it's important. And, you know, you mentioned the cat, right? There was a bit of a discrepancy with the cat because the SROs had to go to one clock sync and the broker-dealers had to go to another. And it was a pretty big discrepancy where it would almost make the data not usable because it's such a wide discrepancy. I understand that. But when we're talking about, and I don't know the terms, but like, you know, the... the, the Right now we're looking at milliseconds and going to nanoseconds. I mean, right now they're just millisecond requirements. Eventually that will be pushed to nanosecond requirements. Right. But I, I, I think that sometimes just because you can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should because of the amount of money and the drain on the, the industry that it will cost. And like, again, to your original point with the reporting, how much will you really be able to drive or, or, or understand from it? Yeah. And just so you know, it's Jock Percy from Perseus. That's just what I said. Oh, Jack Percy from Perseus. Sorry. Well, I mentioned his. I mentioned his company name. You, you made fun of me before. You know, getting a name wrong. So yeah, I had to. So to wrap things up, we're gonna uh, close out with a feature from friend of the pod, Wei Shen Wang, who mm -hmm. appeared, uh, you know, a few months ago. 
called uh, the long arm of European law, MIFID II's impact on Asia Pacific. Wei Shen is, is based in Hong Kong, so she's a, our editorial presence over there. So she's always got a, her finger on the pulse of what's going on there. So this piece kind of looks at the impact of MIFID II on, um, Asia, on the Asia Pacific. One of the things early on that's discussed is research on bundling. Now, Agalos has done, did a fantastic feature on this a couple months ago. Well, Not to say yeah. that Wei Shen Wan didn't do a good job. It's, it, it's a little bit of a different perspective, but I'll put the link into Agalos as well because that's definitely worth reading. Uh, she mentions a sock gen partnership with Smart Karma that uh, you know basically allows this unbundled research. It's more than 100 investment firms with 400 analysts. Um, and also, something that I found interesting was hedge funds in Asia, how they're going to be impacted from MIFID too. So a hedge fund that's headquartered based in Hong Kong, right, or somewhere in Asia, isn't going to be, you know, MIFID II is not going to apply to them. But they're going to have European investors that are now used to dealing with European, other European hedge funds. The PII that, that we were talking about before, things around that nature. Well, that, and also the fact that, well, in terms of research bundling, they get to see where it's very transparent now, and that's not the case in Asia. So now they're going to turn to their uh, Asian hedge fund and say, well, I want the same thing I'm getting with all my other. Like, this is great. I like seeing this. So how come you're not doing it? Yeah. And while they're not required to, you know, and Wei Shen says that in general, Asia tends to follow trends in the West. So this is an, a, a trend that we could see. But for the time being, they're not required to do anything. But it'll be interesting to see how these Asia hedge funds that cater to these European clients will shift. Um also, another you know conversation was around potentially a limit on some research, and not so much you know there's always going to be research in Asia Pacific, but it's going to be now who's going to offer it because of this unbundling, and how much is it going to cost, and that's going to be something to keep an interesting eye on. Um, it's a developing market, obviously. That you know, the regulations around the world as as firms become more global globalized, as they become more interconnected. And as especially uh, Asia marketplaces look to draw in foreign investors, it's not like they can just turn a blind eye to these major uh, initiatives that are stemming out of um, Europe and even in the U.S. So sure. obviously it's going to create headaches and challenges along the way. And then, you know, the final thing she just wraps up saying is basically how there's, you know, the, the three kind of categories of firms that are going to be in, impacted. You have the Asia branches of global banks, which will fall under MIFID regulation. And then there are the separate legal entities that might sit under a European group. So something that's part of a European firm, but maybe is is um, is, is is based and um, I'm, the, I'm blanking on the right word. Incorporated, <laughs> if it's incorporated in an Asian country. And then you have the local banks or local firms. So you know, I won't get too much into it, but it's definitely worth a read. Interesting take, especially if you have, if you're dealing in Asia, you're, you know, definitely if you're based in Asia, um, it's a different, different, interesting look at how, you know, this, we always think of MIFID II in Europe and, you know, also in, in America, but it's definitely gonna have a big impact, maybe even a bigger impact or an interesting impact on Asia just because the regulations aren't necessarily there. And like you said, it's developing. So interesting yeah. stuff. For sure. Four features, go check them out. Uh, we'll link to them. Um, and obviously, if you want to uh, write our reporters, they can chat with you much more in depth than Dan and I, who did not do the reporting on those stories. Yes. We're just giving some dap yeah. to our reporters. Dapping it Showing up. love. Dapping up, showing that love from yeah. Team Waters. You know yeah. how it is. Go Team Waters. Uh, we'll switch now to some non-fintech topics, because that's way more fun to talk about. There you go. <laughs> um, SCOTUS nomination. Anthony, you are our resident SCOTUS politics expert between the two of us. 
what are your thoughts on President Trump's SCOTUS nomination? Well, um, so Neil uh, Gorsuch is the selection, and he is going to replace Antonin Scalia, the conservative lion of the right on, um, on the Supreme Court bench. Um, Scalia died in February of 2016. Weird circumstances. Weird circumstances? I thought that. Was it, was it, the like, pillow his was over his face. Well, was over, yeah, the pillow was over his face, but... He was, like, at his hunting camp, right? Yeah, he's old. He died. It happens. You can I, die at a hunting... He died in bed. Stay woke, man. Stay okay, woke. hey, listen. Well, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so he dies. Um, President Obama, then uh, President uh, Obama, uh, he uh, selects Merrick Garland. Uh, who in the past would have been in a less toxic time would have been a great choice because he's left, but just mo- he's a moderate left. You know, he's not like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg left. He's you know right to the left, maybe a Kennedy-esque um, uh, choice. So the Republicans would naturally have pushed him through because that's the best you can really hope for um, when you consider, you know, Sotomayor or uh, Kagan getting put up there. You know, he's he would be to the right of them. The Republicans decide to go the obstructionist route, saying, in the memory of Scalia, God bless him, we ha- it would be wrong for us to put another justice in his place until the voters have spoken. And the Democrats said, well, we could push on this, but we're not. Democrats kind of stayed quiet on this. You didn't hear much about the Supreme Court justice. You didn't hear Garland's name come out of uh, Hillary Clinton's mouth much during the campaign uh, trail, did this we? This is true. This is true. So they figured they were going to win. The Democrats figured they were going to win the election. And I actually think that maybe Garland would have been pulled back. And then President Clinton would have named her own uh, nominee to the So uh, it wasn't, you don't think it would have even been Clinton's choice? I don't think so. I think that they were almost hoping, like, you know, we got this wrapped up. We're going to win. And we can put somebody along the lines of a Sotomayor or Kagan on to replace Scalia. My God, what a win that would be. Right. You'd swing the court sure. because of that. Didn't work out that way. So No, it did not. Gorsuch is, um, he's basically a Scalia clone has been the term that's being thrown around, um, 538, but they actually have like a kind of a scale as to where each person sits with Clarence Thomas all the way on the right. Like as bad as you think Scalia was as far as being an ultra-conservative, Thomas is way, way worse, uh, or way, way right, whatever you're, Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Careful yeah, yeah. there. Hey, hey. I'm a Republican, Let's so not I'm, al- I'm allowed to say those things. I'm allowed to say those things. Um, it's my team, I guess. <laughs> um, Scalia, uh, Gorsuch uh, falls just a little bit to the right of Scalia. Um, quite frankly, when you look at some of the other insane nominees that Trump has put forward, this one makes a lot of sense because from an ideology perspective, you're not replacing Garland, you're replacing Scalia, and it has to be remembered during this process. Are the Democrats going to lose their mind? They're saying that they're going to fight this hard tooth and nail. One push comes to shove. Are you really going to put down and put all your bullets into this fight when Kennedy, uh, who's 80 years old, could step down at any moment? Um, and mind you, Gorsuch was um, uh, he what do you call it? Um, <laughs> he uh, clerked. Yeah, he was uh, a clerk. Ken. Right. Yeah. So he clerked for Kennedy. And so Kennedy might see, oh, OK, you know what? That's a nice choice that you made there. I have faith that Trump will put in a responsible pick to fill my seat should I step down. Um, so are, the, the Democrats, I think, are going to have to get ready to fight for the Kennedy seat or should Ruth Bader Ginsburg step down or become ill or something like that because she's in her 80s too. 
Um, so those are the fights I think they're going to fight for. I, I really think that, again, you're replacing Scalia. So the ideological scale of the court will remain the same. Democrats had a chance. They could have fought tooth and nail on Garland if they wanted to, which would have pissed off, you know, the right wing voter and would have given them more, you know, you know, some ammunition to attack Clinton with. But they chose not to because they kind of assumed, I think, that they were going to win this and they don't want to piss off too many independent voters. This has been something you've had your eye on for a while. I remember talking about for a while how you said this is such an important presidency because this president said it on this is, podcast you said it on this podcast on these very airwaves yeah. that uh he or she you know we didn't we, we didn't know at the time is going to be able to implement you said up to four right four three four justices oh it, it, yeah if potentially would have won rbg sets that you got to think that she steps down in those four years you mm-hmm. would have to think it you know um kennedy again would still have been up there to step down and then you have the the scalia seat still open right. so minimum three and then who knows sure. if Thomas or something. If somebody becomes ill, you can't, you know, Scalia right. died out of nowhere. So you yeah, just don't you never know. know. So that's a lot of swing and a lot of... Oh, uh, you would have changed the court for for the next 30 years. You know. So it, uh, I mean, what do you, do you have, do you personally have an opinion on the nomination? I think it's what could be expected. I think that there has to be a wide range of opinions on the listen the left is going to hate this pick and rightfully so but again it's important to remember that you have a republican president as insane as this man is this is a responsible pick you're putting a circle peg in a circle spot yeah this is a pick that perfectly i mean the guy has all the credentials i really was worried that trump was going to try and pick you know like just some businessman or something like that that <laughs> you know just because there have been talks of like governors that have practiced law becoming like clinton uh, bill clinton looked at that um you know you had the terrible harriet myers picked by president bush um so there are a lot of cases where people have tried to go outside the ranks and go with politicians that have studied law on the supreme court this is a responsible pick even though the left rightfully should hate him. They're going to hate this man. He's young. He's 49 years old. Yeah. John Roberts was young when he was 50. This guy's going to be there for 20, 30 years. And, you know, there's a lot of cases as far as, you know, women's reproductive rights, stuff like that, that are going to come up. LGBTQT. Yep. Um, Roe v. Wade is going to be huge. We, you know, he hasn't ruled much on that. But, again, you have to figure that his alignment's going to be closer to Scalia. Um, the reason why people should care um, about this in our space, why this isn't just us talking about Supreme Court justice, is look at the insane travel ban, um, the, the no Muslims mm-hmm. uh, thing. No, he says it's not that, even though Giuliani came out and said, yes, this, this is Trump's way of getting around that. Um, you have employees that come from other countries, from Muslim countries. That's going to affect how they can travel, how they can work. You're going to care about that as a business. You saw Lloyd Blankfeld uh, come forward from Goldman Sachs saying this is not what we believe in. That's Goldman Sachs coming out and saying this. And Goldman Sachs right now is running much of Trump's. Yeah, uh, running the White House. Um, So Huge for tech firms. Huge for tech firms. Huge for tech firms. And consider Apple and the San Bernardino case. Eventually, that's, those kind of cases are going to wind their way to the Supreme Court, those kind of data right. security stuff like that. I was that. saying even though the ban, though, the ban is something oh. like, you know, let's, there's a lot of, of 
people from that area of the world that come in and and are great technologists. So this type of band yeah. bringing in those type your of developers, your programmers, stuff like that, yeah. your businesses that you have over there. There's a lot of implications there, and just beyond from a human level, but we'll get beyond that. That's not right. We sound pretty cold hearted. <laughs> yeah, obviously, it's it's much bigger than that. But just strictly for this podcast, no, I uh, I, I agree. Do you think just real quick, and then we'll, yeah. we'll change topics? Do you think this was a play? For you know, Trump has taken a lot of heat. This is a play is kind of looking at the GOP saying, "All right, I got your." You know, this was this is one for you guys because you saw basically everyone in the GOP came out, even people that have been against Republicans yeah. that have been Trump. Ben Sasse, who I great. love, the senator from Nebraska, he championed this pick, you know, full heartedly. You know, and again, it's a responsible pick to replace Scalia. If this was who you were replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg with. Well, then there should be now a massive shifting. fight that yeah, should now take you're shifting place. The court. Um, and if this was the pick to replace Candy, there should be a massive fight. It is important to have all sides of a republic represented. represented on the Supreme Court, whether you like their opinions or not. RBG and Scalia were the best of friends. They had great discussions. They brought each other. They brought the level of discussion and debate. They raised it. Scalia, I don't like Scalia. I, I didn't care for most of his decisions. I disagreed with him on many, many points. But again, you have to have those different kind of views on the Supreme Court. Otherwise, sure. it just be, it goes. You don't want to talk into an echo chamber. Exactly. So let's switch to something that's far more important to the country's well-being. Far more. Which is the Super Bowl. Yep. Now, before you tune out, if you're not a sports fan, we're not going to talk about the Super Bowl game. We did we that last discuss week. that last week. You can listen to that. We both picked New England to win. We're going to talk Go about. Pats. Although I'm well, I don't. I'm not going to have it. Uh, we are going to talk about something much more important that the country cares much more about, which is gambling on the Super Bowl. Uh, if I, it's legal, if you go out to Las Vegas or wherever it's legal to do this, of I course. I did see a stat. I think Darren Ravel tweeted it that something like of the billions of dollars that is bet on the Super Bowl, 95% of it is done illegally, which, I mean, shouldn't surprise most people how many people live in Nevada. But, um, yeah, it's – I remember last year, right after the Super Bowl, when I had to – when I may or may not have to pay out some of my bets, uh, Venmo, which I use for for that type of stuff, was actually shut down, actually failed because of the amount of gambling that was taking place afterwards. But so let's get into it. We have – we decided instead of talking about typical wagers, we're going to talk about – uh, prop bets. For those of you who don't know, prop bets are things that you can gamble on, not necessarily directly related, well, related to the game, but how many touchdowns a player is going to score, when a player is going to score, where a player is going to score, what type of play is going to be the first play, things like that. For the like Super that. Bowl, there's like a thousand different prop bets. You Literally, can there is, tw- I printed out all the prop bets on a website I may or may not use to gamble, and there are literally 25 pages of them. So uh, to start, let's go with the classic one. Everyone's heard of this. Heads or tails, off the coin flip. It's a great bet because you find out within about 30 seconds whether you won or lost. Well, you see, uh, for pool, I'm in a pool league, and to decide who goes first, you have to flip a coin, heads or tails, to decide who puts up their player first. I always go heads. I'm a heads guy, too. Even odds, for those of you, so real quick, I'll just explain. When I say minus 104, that means if you you have to put down $104 to win $100. If I say uh, plus 120, that means that if you put down $100, you win $120. So that's uh, it, that's not counting the actual bet. So technically, so you, you're not putting actually. Does, it, does it, am I making sense? I, don't know. I guess it's a little confusing for people, but it's even it's odds. It's even money. It's on even this. odds. Yeah. So I always go heads as well. I lost last year betting heads, um, but yeah. Uh, team to score first in the game, right? 
The Pats have a slight uh, are are a slight favorite minus one twenty to the Atlanta Falcons minus one ten, and then team to score last in the game, same thing. Pats are minus one twenty to Falcons minus one ten. Now, if you follow logic and you think the logic of a lot of people, and you think that the Pats are going to win and maybe win handily. I would go team to last score in the game. I think you got to bet the Falcons because you got to yes. think that they're down and they're going to try to come back. Yep. Um, team to score first in the game. I've heard now the Pats usually defer. Yeah. So they usually give the ball. They have the option. That's their, they want to get they want to score once before halftime and then get the ball back in the third right. quarter, which is almost like a turnover. Then. Yeah. So defer meaning that they would kick the ball off to the Falcons to start the game. So so maybe smart money's on the Falcons. I'd put the money on the Falcons. Good offense. You know, it might take a little bit of time for the Patriots to get into the game. Like you said, like if the, pa- the Patriots aren't going to take the ball if they win the coin toss. Um, Atlanta, who the hell knows? I'm, I don't know nearly enough about their strategies. First coach challenge outcome. This is like These are the things It's amazing that you can bet on this. Uh, play overturned, play stand. What you, what, even odds, minus 115 for both. I think that the referees are terrible, so I think that it will be definitely overturned. Whatever the call was on the field, it will be overturned. Yeah, I'm not sure of the crew that's out there, but they were pretty bad in the playoffs and high nerves. Maybe you make a call on a fumble that you shouldn't. I could see that going uh, play overturned. Moving right along, um, we have, will there be a safety in the game? So this is these are the type of prop bets that people like because there's really good odds. So plus 600, yes, minus 1,000, no. Meaning that if, if you bet on, yes, there's a safety and there's a safety, if you bet a hundred dollars, then you win six hundred dollars, including and then you also win your hundred dollars back. Mm-hmm. So you technically you you pay a hundred dollars and win back seven hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, this happens in the last in the last. Definitely Patriots. happened with Denver. It happened in the last. It happened Patriots. with the last Patriots. Well, not yeah. the last Patriots, but it happened Patriot. It happened Denver because uh, Peyton got Patch sacked. Giants won. Yeah. It happened Patch Giants. He ran out of the end uh, the end zone. You, it's sucker it better no. Sucker better no. I think when you it's like when you go to a horse track. You don't bet on the favorite. You know, what's sure. the point of betting on the favorite? Sure. You want to win money. You want to maximize your winning potential. Would I put a lot of money on yeah. this? this? No. This but this is fun. You put 50 bucks on it, you could win 300 bucks. Now a game like this New England's defense is very good, but they're very good at betting not breaking. They're not this dominant Baltimore Ravens, Seattle Seahawks as defense. Same thing with Atlanta. So I wouldn't take that particular bet. But in most years, I don't think it's a horrible bet. The tough, though, though, one thing I will say, though, offensive battle, it's not going to be about field position. You're not going to see a lot of punts. You're not going to see a lot of people pinned back mm-hmm. at the one, yeah. which is a big thing. And also with the, the kickoff return rules now, nobody takes it out. Everybody starts from, the, I think it's the 25 now, right? 25, they moved yeah. So something to consider. Uh, will the game go to overtime? I love this bet. I see this bet every year. Every year I want to make it. Obvi- the super. Uh, not obviously, some people know. A Super Bowl has never gone to overtime. Come very close. A couple Pat Super Bowls came very close. Yep. Plus 800, right? Yes. Minus 1400, no. Again, is this a sucker bet or what do you think? There's no chance going to overtime. No chance. I love the confidence. I can't Market. wait to talk to you next week when the Market. Pats lose. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. This one, I think, is this is my bet of the week, right? My bet of the Super Bowl. Will a roughing the passer penalty be called in the game? Yes. Plus 115. You're getting money. They're giving you money. No, minus 145. You got Tom Brady, right, who, although Roger Goodell maybe doesn't like Roger him. Roger Goodell, the puppet still, master, will not allow a rough no, in the No, Roger Goodell is uh, – Tom Brady is still the face of the Pats and all, a face of the NFL. And also, let's remember, the Falcons are coached by who? 
Dan Quinn, who used to coach who? The Seattle Seahawks, who used to do what? Used to try to break the rules all the time, smash mouth football. And while the Falcons aren't known for their defense, I think they're going to try to make a statement early. Also, on the other end, you got pretty boy Matt Ryan, who is probably going to be the MVP, the new potentially face of the NFL. They're going to want to keep those guys both up and clean. And they know CTE, a lot of eyes on. I think the flags can come out early. I think there will be a roughing the passer called. I think there will just be against Matt Ryan because Tom Brady, they couldn't murder with, they could go uh, any, or not any given time, last Boy Scout and shoot him yeah, yeah, down yeah, the right. field and not going to call it because Goodell owns everything and uh, it's all bent and all <laughs> okay. fixed. All right. Okay. Only if the Pats. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pats propaganda. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, next one. Will the Patriots get a successful fourth down? Yes, plus 130. So good money. Uh, no, minus 160. I say yes. They are known for getting fourth downs yep. either towards the end of the game to clinch it or you know when it's like fourth and inches. They love that Brady sneak, you know, yep. with the exception of that fumble he had. I think it was last. He's known to kind of get that. Yep. I think that's I think that's a safe bet. I think it's a good bet. bet. I think it'll happen. Uh, we got a few more here. All right, Super Bowl MVP. So this is a popular bet because uh, you can win a lot of money last year. If you would have bet Von Miller, I think he was like plus five thousand, meaning you bet a hundred bucks and you win five thousand uh, dollars. You know, so typically the two, the odds-on favorite are Tom Brady and Matt Ryan. Tom Brady's minus one fifty, Matt Ryan's plus one fifty. Those essentially mirror what the team's uh, money line bet is, meaning if you just bet either team straight up to win as opposed to with the spread, because basically if a team's going to win nine times out of ten, their quarterback's going to win. Yeah. If I, I wouldn't bet either, and even though. then, like you had like the one year, like Peyton Manning won the, the the MVP against the Bears, and he didn't have a very good game, right? But because you are the quarterback, and they're like, eh, we don't really right. have anybody else stand out. You get it now. Uh, like your point before, you don't bet the favorite when you go to the racetrack. Yeah. I wouldn't bet either of those, right? Yeah. Uh, here's the interesting thing. Also, you have the dynamic, Goodell. You know, does he really want to hand over the Lombardi the Trophy and the MVP? Yeah, no chance Tom Brady's getting it. All right, so who are your other options? Well, number three is Julio Jones plus 1,000. So that one's a little bit tougher, though, because I think if the Falcons win, Julio Jones' success is completely reliant on Matt Ryan. So anytime Julio Jones does well with a reception or a touchdown catch, it's going to be because Matt Ryan threw thing, But, you know, I mean— the, the Patriots are good at taking away your best weapon. Their best weapon is Julio Jones. I don't think that's a very safe bet for the money. Okay. LeGarrette Blunt. Well, plus let me ask you this. Who are, rather than going through each person? No, no. These are the guys I have highlighted. Oh, so okay. this is, I think Julio, I think Julio Jones is an interesting bet. I think LeGarrette Blunt at plus 2,000 is interesting. I think Devontae Freeman for the Falcons running back at plus 2,200 is interesting. And then the wild card, Chris Hogan. Plus 3,300. The guy's been on a tear, right? He's a deep threat down the field. Gets a couple bombs. All of a sudden, if he's got, uh, you know, 175 yards receiving and two touchdowns, I don't know. Those are interesting numbers. My, oh, yeah? No, no, no. That's, that's, that's all I had. Who's yours? My three guys are Hogan, I think, could definitely be a guy that wins it because Brady, if he throws four touchdowns, probably still won't get the MVP. They'll probably give it to the, you know, Hogan who gets two and buck 50. Right. Um, but I like Deion Lewis. Um, uh, just out of the backfield, you know, racking up 60, 70 yards rushing, racking up another, you know, 70, 80 yards receiving, kick a couple return? touchdowns. What's that? Kick, kick off return, return you know, I, I really like him. And then um, I like uh, Tevin Coleman of Atlanta, just because he's longer odds, 5,000 plus 5,000. Um, he can catch a lot of balls out of the backfield, and he's a goal line. Uh, you know, he'll just steal those one-yard touchdowns. So we could end up with 30 yards rushing. 80 yards receiving, two, three touchdowns should Atlanta win. I wouldn't be shocked if uh, he ended up uh, getting it. 
my personal opinion, stay away from the defensive players. That's fool's gold, right? Yes. Last year you had to hit. This is going to be an offensive game. You know, even if the over doesn't hit, which I think is 59 right now, it's still going to be 30 to 20, maybe. maybe I still think it's going to be 24 20 is my, is my pick, but. Not going to be a defensive battle, though, so I don't think it's worth it for a, a defensive player. Uh, last but not least, we're running long here. Let's talk quickly what everybody loves about the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. the food, right? Mm-hmm. So what is – I know you're heading down tomorrow to North Carolina to see, uh, to see Pops, another friend of the Waters Wavelength yep, podcast. Uh, what's your spread like? What do you, what do you look to, to get Well, Mama Lakin. Mama, Dad don't cook. So, of course. You know, I, I would never – you can't do any sort of uh, thing in the kitchen, so – uh, my mom is fantastic at making lasagna and meat in the lasagna and sauce. So yeah, meat in the lasagna, of course, ground beef, um, and then also sausage and peppers. Um, so those are the staples, and then of course your chips and stuff like that. What about yeah? You do pigs in a blanket, seven layer dip. You got to have the finger foods too. Buffalo don't you? wings, if uh, if they're available, I think uh, you know they're always good kind of order. I'll get some buffalo wings. Um, I I hate buffalo wings, but Super Bowl is like the one time that I'll normally eat buffalo wings. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, I think. Uh, I'm not a big, heavy, like, I'm kind of opposite of you. I couldn't, I wouldn't want to eat, like, lasagna or sausage and peppers. The biggest, the heaviest I'll go is, like, a piece of pizza. But it's all about grazing. The Super Bowl is all about grazing. You got to have your pigs in a blanket. You got to have your shrimp cocktail. You got to have your seven-layer dip. You got to have maybe your baked potato skins. Um, You got to have maybe something bacon-wrapped. I don't know what, but you can wrap anything in bacon. Who's cooking all this for you? Um, Well, you know, I'm going to my friends out in Chicago, so hopefully his fiance will be up for for cooking. Um, But you got to have a... uh, a, um, uh, an antipasto plate because you're Italian, so of course you gotta have you know your your, your different cured meats. Your gumbo. Um, <laughs> yeah, you gotta have. I like. To, I'm a big grazer because I want to be able to eat it throughout. I don't want to have my sit down meal, but that's just me. Uh, I guess that's it for this week. Enjoy the game. Oh, uh, and before we go, I'd be re- remiss without mentioning two things. First, uh, thanks again to the sponsor of this week's web, uh, w- this week's episode, SmartStream. For more info on its solutions, go to www.smartstream-stp.com. And also, if you're just trying to get it in under the wire, uh, February 6th is Monday, February 6th is the deadline for the SST Awards. They are April 5th at the Marriott Marquis in New York. Um, 8 a.m. British Standard Time is the deadline on Monday. So basically, just get them in Friday because you know you're not going to wake up early enough to get them in on Monday. Get them in Friday. 30 categories, 28 are open to entry. Best uh, distributed ledger technology product, uh, best artificial intelligence technology, best use of agile, and best alliance or partnership. Um, So get those in. February 6th is the deadline. Thanks so much. Well, first, Anthony, you got anything else? I'm all set. Thanks so much for tuning in and uh, be sure to come back next Thursday.